The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Today's interview is with Erica Chenoweth. She is a professor of human rights and international relations at the Harvard Kennedy School and the author of the forthcoming book, Civil Resistance, What Everyone Needs to Know. Our conversation explores why civil resistance is more effective than violent resistance, why it is more likely to bring about democracy, and finally, the strengths and challenges every campaign faces. This is the first part of a three-episode arc called Resistance, Revolution, Democracy. My conversation with Erica sets the stage for the next two episodes. The superior effectiveness of civil resistance as a political strategy requires a paradigm shift in how we think about revolutions, regime change, and the pathways to democracy. The next two conversations will build on the ideas Erica explains here. I invite you to follow my interviews with George Lawson and Jonathan Pinckney to understand how these ideas all come together. But for now, here's my interview with Erica Chenoweth. Erica, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you very much. Well, I am a uh, very big fan of your work. Um, it's, uh, it's really pivotal to, I think, understanding democracy, the idea of civil resistance. Um, I'd like to, I always like to start out the conversation just by defining some of the concepts that we're going to talk about. Now, your book refers to civil resistance uh, rather than nonviolent resistance or civil disobedience. Can you uh, define civil resistance and explain why you chose this term over others? Sure. So civil resistance is a method of conflict where unarmed people actively coordinate a number of different techniques like protests, boycotts, stayaways, go slows, mass non-cooperation, and mass demonstrations um, in order to create some kind of uh, political, social, or economic, or cultural change. And, um, you know, it's a technique that's used all over the world and, and has been documented um, since people have been writing down their histories, but there's only in the past century been a word to describe it. And the term civil resistance, I think, captures a few important elements of the phenomenon. The first is um, the term civil references the fact that it's collective and usually um, on behalf of some collective public purpose. So it really invokes the, um, the sort of civic origins of the technique and uh, perhaps that's how in one way it's connected with the notion of democracy. Um, the Terms nonviolent resistance um, and civil disobedience are not totally dissimilar. Um, many people, including myself, often use those 
the term nonviolent resistance and civil resistance interchangeably. Um, the only downside to using the term nonviolent resistance um, is that sometimes then um, it brings about um, debates about what qualifies as nonviolent, um, which is um, important, but also can be distracting from talking about the overall range of, of, um, of uh, tactical repertoires that have been practiced. Um, and then sometimes the term the, the term civil disobedience regular method um, that is uh, breaking an unjust law and purpose um, that is one of many thousands of methods of civil resistance. There's a quote in your book that I liked where you said civil resistance is not necessarily about peaceful conflict resolution. In a very real sense, civil resistance constructively promotes conflict. Can you give some examples of the kind of conflicts you're referring to? Yeah, so um, people that are paying attention to, to world news right now will see the case of Belarus actively unfolding, and that's a good example of a, of a mass movement that has used civil resistance um, as part of its campaign to, um, to remove uh, Lukashenko from power. Um, but, you know, there, there are many different places around the world where we've seen this. Um, uh, the Tunisian Revolution in 2010 is um, one of the more recent iconic examples. So is the Sudanese Revolution of 2018 and 2019 that, that removed um, Bashir from power after his being there for 30 years. Um, the United States has had many of its own experiences with civil resistance, including um, the, the mass protest movement of this past summer, 2020, which is arguably the, the largest and broadest in terms of geographic distribution uh, mass uprising uh, that we've seen using nonviolent resistance. So it's ubiquitous, um, and uh, we've, we've seen many examples in almost every country. Now, key to your work, the, the big finding that you've had and that you oftentimes talk about is that civil resistance is more effective than violent resistance. Can you talk about this conclusion, how you came to it, and why civil resistance is more effective? Sure. So uh, maybe it's important first to lay out the scope condition for that claim, which is what mm -hmm. we're looking at is, um, is what you would call maximalist campaigns. So those that are trying to overthrow the incumbent national leader or create territorial independence. Um, and the, the reason why there's a focus on that particular scope of cases uh, is because they're actually arguably the easiest to compare across contexts. Um, if we were just trying to compare any uh, kind of movement with any kind of claim, um, it might actually be much more difficult to assess their outcomes. Um, it's not impossible to do, but it becomes a little easier to uh, make the argument that we're comparing apples to apples um, if, if we kind of limit it to a particular subset of campaigns. And um, if you're trying to apply a hard test or a difficult standard, uh, to campaign success, it can be useful to look at extreme examples like these maximalist campaigns. So um, if we look at all of the maximalist campaigns of at least a thousand people who organize collective action for longer than a week, um, and we have a database uh, that ranges from 1900 to 2019 um, of hundreds of, of such campaigns. And uh, basically, the ones that relied primarily on nonviolent resistance, 
succeeded uh, over 50% of the time. And uh, those that relied on armed resistance succeeded about 25% of the time. And um, the reasons why um, I and some others have argued that nonviolent resistance has that, uh, that success rate advantage is uh, be, first of all, because nonviolent campaigns tend to be much larger and more diverse in terms of their participation. Um, and that actually allows those campaigns to activate a number of different important political mechanisms through interpersonal relationships and networks um, that creates defections on the other side. Um, so lots of people will be familiar with cases where security forces or police refused to crack down and either uh, didn't cooperate or obey with an order to crack down or who even in some cases went over to the side of the opposition um, in these circumstances. <clears throat> but there are also cases where say economic and business elites slowly over time begin to put pressure um, on the, the government to accommodate demands of the, of the movement. This is the case in South Africa, for example, with the anti-apartheid movement. And so the, the key there is just um, that large and diverse campaigns are better able uh, to put pressure on, disrupt or dislocate the power holder from their pillars of support in the society. And um, the, the other thing that makes nonviolent campaigns more likely to succeed is also related to their large numbers, which is that um, the more people who are participating actively, the more uh, tactical innovations are possible. And tactical innovations can be very important in uh, understanding the sustainability of a campaign over time, um, particularly when the tactical innovations allow people to shift into very disruptive but safer techniques like stay-at-homes or general strikes, which are highly effective uh, in and of themselves, but are also hard to do uh, if a campaign is small or only represents a small proportion of the society. And then the last thing um, that successful campaigns do is they tend to um, be quite resilient and disciplined, even as um, repression starts to escalate against them. And when repression escalates against nonviolent campaigns, there's a generalized principle that it's more likely to backfire um, than when repression escalates against an armed campaign, um, which can often um, result in much higher uh, mass casualties of civilians uh, but also doesn't necessarily produce the same kind of backlash domestically or internationally um, that escalating repression produces against unarmed people. I was interested in how you talk about the importance of nonviolent campaigns is that they're able to mobilize more people. But there was a quote in the book that caught my attention regarding that. You, you mentioned how veteran civil rights organizer Bernice Johnson Reagan once said that if they're if you're com comfortable with everyone in your coalition, you're not in a coalition. Uh, maintaining a winning coalition is much more difficult than selecting a clear and concrete objective. It often requires skilled mediators and a movement-wide willingness to resolve conflict through some accept uh, accepted process. Um, that's a direct quote. In your book, you get into how it's complicated. Because the success of the non of uh, civil resistance is that you're able to mobilize so many people, but the problem is is that you've got so many different views and perspectives. How do those campaigns balance the two? It's really hard. Um, there's a really good article on this by Mark Beisinger, um, who really introduces the idea of 
um, in the Ukraine example from the Orange Revolution, how, um, you know, he calls it the semblance of democratic revolution, um, because he, he argues it's, it's much easier to form a negative coalition. That is to say, put together a huge number of diverse uh, participants and groups that are against something um, than it is to then resolve um, the different types of conflicts between competing priorities, um, competing interests among these diverse participants and formulating uh, the alternative structures and systems. So um, later, I guess you'll interview Jonathan Pinckney, who's written a book about you know, why it is that, um, that some um, countries emerge from civil resistance-induced transitions more democratic, whereas others um, emerge more uh, less democratic. And part of his argument is exactly that um, when, when campaigns aren't able to resolve the problems of coalition, um, they, they gen generally kind of fall apart and are, and are at risk of having kind of a counter-revolution. And part of the thing that Pinckney recommends is that um, campaigns um, have to have some kind of process of negotiations or consensus formation that occurs both during the campaign and during the transition. And that transitions that are negotiated um, and that lead to elections and then kind of institutionalize the opposition in the aftermath are much more stable and more likely to emerge as democracies. So, you know, of course, this creates a number of problems for movements that are really relying on the sort of counter-establishment um, uh, members of the opposition um, and uh, those who are understandably very dubious of people that want to participate directly in institutionalized politics. Um, uh, you know, and so there, there's sort of a, a dual process that has to happen. There has to be some level of accountability created from the new um, system to the grassroots. And part of the way that that happens is through continual pressure and, and mobilization. So, you know, it, it, you can understand then why it can be such a um, fragile time and many countries that are emerging from a civil resistance induced transition because they both are having, you know, part of the coalition institutionalized and begin to participate in formal politics, but they also still have an actively mobilized grassroots um, to try to hold them accountable. And so, you know, as that process unfolds, um, it, hopefully it, it, it creates norms of accountability and nonviolent conflict resolution. Um, and, and that's what stabilizes the, the sort of equilibrium. The way that civil disobedience or civil resistance rather is able to transition into uh, democracy is really fascinating to me in your discussion of parallel institutions. But I, I, I really do want to touch on something different that's related, which is um, the idea of fringe violence that you write quite about or quite a bit about. And especially because that, that comes into the idea of people having disagreements over strategies to be able to proceed. Can you explain what that is and how that can be a problem for a civil resistance campaign? Yeah, so um, I use the term fringe violence in the book. Um, and, you know, to some extent, it's synonymous, synonymous with what others call violent flanks or radical flanks. Um, and uh, basically, this is a phenomenon where you have an overwhelming number of people who are using nonviolent resistance, but there may be a few, a select few 
um, that are either part of the movement or just kind of peripherally involved um, who begin to um, use violence, street fighting, um, in some cases armed confrontations with counter protesters, with police or with bystanders. Um, and um, this, uh, you know, phenomenon of fringe violence um, can sometimes have the effect of uh, shrinking the participation size of the movement, um, certainly escalating repression against the movement. Often um, it has sort of the same impact as would be seen if, if the movement had been infiltrated with agents provocateurs, um, where, you know, the crackdowns start and they're uh, considered much more publicly acceptable because uh, the scene looks violent and chaotic rather than disciplined and, um, and uh, strategic. Um, and the other thing is that uh, we, you know, generally some research has found uh, that fringe violence can reduce uh, public sympathy and third party support uh, for, for the campaign in general. So, um, you know, this is still a very active part of the, of the research program, um, both in the civil resistance literature and in broader social movement uh, literature. Um, and I think that the consensus really is that um, we know that, that the, the use of violent flanks really does tend to result in a higher level of repression against the movement. But other than that, um, it can be fairly unpredictable and quite context specific um, how it affects the movement. I think that um, one, of the, one of the issues that's still um, under inquiry in a lot of places is whether it actually does make the movement less popular or more popular in some contexts for there to be some degree of, um, of confrontation like this. And there's some scholarship out there that suggests that movements in Hong Kong, for example, and um, and in the um, uh, and in the case of um, the LA riots of 1992, some scholars have found that that uh, rioting um, as a as a kind of a form of this um, didn't actually depress public opinion about uh, certain movements, but actually like maintained it or even increased public sympathy. Um, then again, riots are not actually um, considered, in, at least in my opinion, as a form of fringe violence. Um, property destruction to me is, you know, when it's strategic and, um, and communicated, the strategic purpose is communicated, um, can be an important part of a civil resistance campaign. Um, <clears throat> but, um, you know, what, what, what matters is how the, the public responds to that in terms of the, the political outcome. Um, and that you'll see ranges very widely across contexts and, and, and conflicts. So one of the things that I've noticed, though, is especially from your work, articles and everything else, is that it's not necessarily always the group that instigates fringe violence. Sometimes it's just the way that politicians or leaders try to frame it. Uh, we see that a lot right now with the um, with the protests in the United States, where Donald Trump has obviously tried to frame this as being uh, fringe violence, for instance. Um, you have a quote in there that seems very ominous to me uh, in terms of the current context, where you say, 
having cast their opponents as rioters, authorities can arrest and imprison them, tarnish their reputations and undermine popular sympathy for them. We should therefore be a bit skeptical when officials or journalists reporting official statements call an action a riot. Uh, we should always ask which side of the conflict the authorities of the protesters are the ones labeling the event as a riot. Um, I, I found that really insightful in terms of understanding the current context in the United States as well as other places, um, especially the idea of fringe violence isn't is is sometimes described as such when maybe that's just the way politicians have explained it. Yeah, and there's some really important experimental evidence out that um, that shows pretty clearly that the way a protest is framed or a police protest interaction is framed strongly affects public uh, opinion of it. <clears throat> so public opinion isn't the only thing that matters, but it can be a very important mechanism through which um, protest movements uh, or civil resistance campaigns create change. Um, and, you know, if, if you buy the sort of theory of change of civil resistance, um, that the most important thing is to dislocate the power holders from its main pillars of support, public opinion is a very important pillar of support. And so to the extent that it can be affected by the movement, um, you know, the, the movement is usually trying to get it to to be more sympathetic. So um, that's precisely why um, politicians will, you know, potentially abuse um, the, the sort of bully pulpit um, and try to cast protests as riots. And they'll also um, generally uh, try to use very pejorative or criminalizing language to refer to the people who are involved, right? Um, accusing them of being um, uh, criminals, thugs, um, agitators, you know, using words that really conjure this negative uh, image around um, behavior that is protected both by civil rights and by uh, international human rights uh, conventions. So, um, so yes, it's a technique uh, to try to regain ground in terms of legitimacy of the government to do whatever it wants um, and to scare the public into thinking that this movement is either asking too much or, or wants to do harm uh, to the public in general. Now, civil resistance is often described as a tool of the left or imagined to be a tool of the left. But in your book, you hint at the, you hint, you give some examples um, of where it's, it's really a tool that can be used for a variety of different causes. Can you give some examples where civil resistance was used in unexpected or even maybe negative, well, nefarious or negative ways? Yeah, so um, like you said, depending on one's definition of, as, of, of sort of the analytical category of civil resistance, um, yeah, um, my, the, the definition that I use or the concept that I use basically um, doesn't make a normative um, assessment of the goals of the campaign. Other people's definitions do. Like if you look at um, uh, the definition at the International Center on Nonviolent Conflicts website, um, you know, they are pretty explicit that, um, that civil resistance is a technique people use to try to resist oppressive systems and uh, achieve justice, right? Um, but I think uh, the definition that I presented more just refers to the category of, of uh, methods that are used uh, to seek change. 
And, um, you know, I, I think in, in the book, I use the example of, um, of uh, anti-abortion uh, activists um, who have, you know, ranged in, in their methods from sit-ins to uh, blockades to obviously both mass protests and small-scale protests, um, various forms of heckling, um, and lots of other techniques that, you know, we'd associate with civil resistance um, and have fairly effectively used these techniques to, um, to get politicians to pass much more restrictive measures. Um, uh, and, you know, that movement also has had its own violent fringe. And, you know, so, so I think a lot of scholars in this area have started to question whether you really can have a, uh, a category called civil resistance um, that doesn't somehow uh, have emancipatory or liberatory goals associated with it or intent associated with it. And um, there are a number of, of scholars who've recently written about this. Kevin Clements, for example, um, from New Zealand, uh, wrote an important article about how um, you know, principled nonviolence is a necessary part of um, the the definition and must be a necessary part of the study of this. It's not an, as he calls it, an optional extra, <laughs> in part because of the fear that um, that campaigns that are actually trying to dispossess people of certain rights or are trying to um, restore, say, autocratic governments, as happened in uh, Thailand. Um, for example, um, can also similarly use these techniques to do so. And so, you know, if you're if we're studying this, we have to um, we have to frame our findings in a way um, that uh, deals with this really difficult political, normative, and ethical issue. Erica, you study this very closely. You are very. I, I know that you look at it from a very global perspective. Where I mean, a lot of your work gets really methodological. You do a great job putting stuff together in terms of um, empirical analysis. But I'd like to get your perspective on, can you give us an example of an less well-known case of civil resistance that's going on right now that's really captured your imagination? That's a great question. Um, I have to say that uh, recently I watched a film uh, called Crip Camp, um, which is on Netflix, I think, right now. Maybe Hulu, I can't remember. Um, but it was actually a, a kind of historical um, look, a documentary about um, a camp in, I think, upstate New York that was um, that came to be known for um, convening uh, youth with disabilities and uh, ultimately became a key meeting point for people that were going to be like absolutely vital uh, in the struggle for um, the American Disability Disabilities Act um, and in creating change around accessibility for people with disabilities in the United States and ultimately worldwide. And um, you know, obviously, the campaign for uh, for the rights of people with disabilities is ongoing. Um, and maybe has faded somewhat out of the limelight uh, because of so many other 
campaigns that are happening at the same time and just the way the news cycle is. Um, but, uh, but in the United States, um, you know, uh, campaigns for, for people with disabilities are ongoing and, and have inspired and been inspired by campaigns uh, for people with disabilities in many other places around the world as well. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've, I've had the privilege of interacting um, with, with people involved in, in that movement from Haiti, from Sierra Leone, from, from many other uh, countries around the world. And the challenges are, are, um, are considerable. Um, and so, you know, that's one that I think doesn't get potentially as much attention as it deserves, um, in part because of just the, um, the, the fact that uh, in many places, there's still taboos um, around the topic. And because of the nature of accessibility um, in our society, um, many people with disabilities are made invisible by, that, by those systems and structures. Um, so I'm, I'm very much interested in learning more about it and um, having others learn more about it. And I recommend that that documentary as a place to start for people. What a perfect answer. Okay. Uh, one last question for you, Erica. Your book is uh, going to be, well, your book's coming out forthcoming is Civil Resistance, What Everyone Needs to Know. Uh, I'm going to give you a softball question here. What does everybody need to know? Yeah, so I'd say, first of all, that nonviolent resistance doesn't always work, but it works much more than its detractors want us to know. The second is that um, almost no progressive change has ever happened without a civil resistance movement at some point. <laughs> um, the third is um, that the way that a campaign conducts itself often is closely related to the type of society that it creates or that it participates in the aftermath. And uh, the final thing is that if we all knew these things about nonviolent resistance, the world would probably be a better place to live. Okay. Thank you so much for taking the time with me, Erica. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Justin. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank Kim Behrens and Gabriella Baldassin at Oxford University Press for a review copy of Civil Resistance, What Everyone Needs to Know. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.